Let's pray again together before we open the Word of God. Lord, I thank You that You are a merciful God, that we can confess our sins and be confident of full forgiveness in Christ, and that now, Lord, gathered as Your church, we've been given a commission, and I pray that as Your people gathered together, sent by You, Uh, that You would now use Your Word to shape us, use Your Word to guide us, and Lord, that it would result in a stronger, healthier church family, and a more committed church family, and Lord, a more effective church family that's reaching our friends and neighbors in our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, hey, good morning. You can open up in your Bibles to 1 Timothy. And uh, we are going through 1 Timothy because that's how we do things. We work through the text of Scripture. We explain it. We apply it. That's how we do things. And we're in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy. And um, as as you're uh, opening up in your copy of God's Word, I want you to... um, Imagine with me something that might be something you've experienced, and you so you don't really even need to imagine it because it's happened to you or is part of your life. But I want you to imagine a holiday where you got to see two sides of the family. You ever have that happen? Uh, sometimes it's the reality when both sides live really close, and you got to hit one family in the morning, and you got to hit another family in the evening. And that's just the way things are. And so you're going from place to place. But I want you to imagine, this might not be true of you, but it might be true of you, that one side you just can't wait to get to. You just can't wait to see everyone and reconnect. And all the joy of those relationships just draw you to be a part of things. And there's that other side that you just would rather not. You're obligated to go, and so you'll go. And just trying to picture the, the reality of these two things. Imagine the first family, you come in the morning and you open the door and you are greeted. Open arms, big hugs, welcomes coming in. The, 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 the older folks are excited to see you. The people your age are excited to see you. The younger people run up to you and grab your leg. The children are all excited and everyone is just thrilled to be part of the family. Maybe you hadn't seen each other in a long time, but it's just exciting. And as the party goes on, families are just hanging out. There's conversations going on in every corner of the room. The young and the old are mixed. The aunts and their nephews and nieces and uncles are all talking. And, and it's just a joy. You could just tell that the mood in the room is these people like each other. And maybe you've been a part of something like that, and it's just no one wants to go home. And if they're meeting at your house, you're like, when are we going to go home? Because everyone loves to be together, but no one wants to say goodbye. And you get a little taste of what heaven's going to be like. You're just enjoying these relationships, and you don't want to say goodbye. And maybe you've experienced the opposite. Where you go, and you show up to the, the place, and you just open the door and and it's this absolute opposite feeling that the moment you walk in it's it's not exuberant welcome it's like oh hey you're here hey so-and-so's here 
and you notice that there's, there's, there's people in this room kind of doing their thing. They're all talking about the past. The younger people don't want anything to do with that. They're over in their own room, plopped in front of the TV, watching something. Teenagers all got their phones out. They're hardly talking to one another, let alone the rest of the people at the party. The mood is a bit depressing. The atmosphere is bleak. It's clear that everyone's there by obligation. No one wants to actually get to know one another. There's no joy in the room. Uh, the, the kids are just holding on to their parents' legs, begging to go home whenever they can because there's no joy in it. There's no unity other than the fact that they're blood-related. There's no deeper connection. There's no sense of joy in the relationships that they share. You maybe have experienced both of those realities at those kinds of events, right? I'm sure you have at some point in your life. And, and I, I bring these up to try to give us a picture of what the church could potentially be. And really, either one of those could be an experience in a church, right? And maybe there are some churches, I know those churches are out there where it just seems like no one wants to really even get to know each other. People just are kind of showing up out of obligation. There's maybe a sense of commitment to the event that they're all, everyone will show up to the event, but not so much a commitment to each other. There's no depth of, of excitement to see one another, to catch up with how things are going. There's no, there's no sense of camaraderie. There's no sense of fellowship in the church. And yet there's those other churches. Uh, these are the ones that you want to be there. You want to be there on a Sunday morning because you know that's when your friends are getting together, your family is getting together, and you get together to catch up because you want to hear what's going on in the other person's lives because you actually cared about them and you thought about the next time you'd be getting together. You thought about them throughout the week. You prayed for them throughout the week. And now you're gathering together on a Sunday morning. You're like, hey, I want to see how things are going. You, you, you love to be there. The, the atmosphere is joyful. The mood is exciting. The commitment is deep. And maybe people who kind of come in and they observe, they go, what, what is it about all these people? What is it about them? They seem to like each other. <laughs> they seem to want to know each other. Their relationships are not superficial. They actually have deep relationships that were actually know what's going on in each other's lives. Now, that's the church I want to be a part of. That's the church I think that we are building here by the grace of God. It's a church that you all are helping cultivate here. And really, as we're going through this letter in 1 Timothy, it's been a lot about doctrine, hasn't it? People got to be able to teach. It's got to be able to protect sound doctrine. We got to protect truth. Timothy, we just saw in the previous section from verses 6 to 16 of chapter 4, was just told from Paul here's how you are a faithful minister of the gospel. You got to be learning the truth. You got to be trained in the faith. You got to be training yourself for godliness. There's got to be some authoritative teaching going on. You got to be able to correct at times. You got to be setting an example. All these things. Give yourself to this, Timothy. Give your life to these things, Timothy. And, and we may not have noticed, we may not have thought that Timothy was being given a recipe for a vibrant, healthy, loving church family. Uh, maybe we didn't connect those things. This, this talk about doctrine, which is run throughout the whole book, and this talk about love and commitment that has been running throughout the whole book 
is really the recipe we need for us as a church and for Timothy in the church that he was serving to become a church that is like family. Don't you want that church to be family where we love and care and know each other? We are committed to the truth together and we are committed to each other out of love. And so all this stuff has been given to Timothy, this pastor. He's at this church in Ephesus. He's being taught how to care for this church. And all of this has been laying the groundwork and giving us the ingredients for this depth of commitment, this type of relationship that the church enjoys where it feels like family. I want to read the section that we're going to look at. It's a little bit longer than what we've previously been doing, uh, but it's all the same theme, and so I think we can get it all in one shot here. I'm going to read chapter 5, verses 1 to 16, where we see these instructions now being given for the whole church, and it shapes the church. These instructions shape the church into a culture that feels like a family. Read along in chapter 5, verse 1. He, he says, do not rebuke an older man. But encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Because of that, or be, besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Now, I love expository preaching. That is preaching that just goes through a book at a time and explains what's there. Because if it were up to me, and for me to sit back and try to devise what I thought everyone needed to hear, I probably wouldn't spend a ton of time talking about widows. That shows my limited wisdom. Now, God, in His infinite wisdom, has decided to give an entire portion of this letter to discussing how the church family should relate to one another and then get specific from verses 3 to 16 to talk about widows. 
And if you thought, well, I have no understanding of why this is there. I don't have any responsibility toward widows. I don't even think I need to know any of this. God thinks otherwise. God thinks we need to hear about widows this morning. And so we're all going to learn about how we as a family relate to one another. And even more specifically, as Paul, inspired by the Spirit, gives us the direction, we as a church are going to learn about how we ought to care for widows this morning. All right? This is what we do when we preach the Word of God. God sets the agenda for the topics of the day. And so here's what we're doing. We're going to talk about three statements that shape our church. And we're going to draw them from this text. Three statements that shape every healthy church being drawn from this text. The first statement is this. You could write this down if you're taking notes. The first statement is this. We are family. We are family. If you are a part of this church, then the biblical command repeatedly throughout Scripture is to treat those as part of your church family as actual family. Look at the verses 1 and 2 again. Do not rebuke an older man. So Timothy, just remember the context here, he's, he's a younger pastor, probably in his 30s. He's coming into a church. He's being told that he needs to teach. He needs to hold fast to the truths of the doctrine. In some cases, he's going to have to be authoritative. And as a young man coming into a situation like that, I could see how he could just blow up the church if he's not careful. He can't just care so much about getting the truth right that he doesn't care about loving people and being relational. And and so Paul gives him some directions about how to relate to different people in the church. Don't rebuke. And the word for rebuke is this uh, word that entails sharpness, this idea of uh, attacking someone, pointing out with the intent to uh, show how wrong they are. Uh, Don't do that, Timothy. Don't just rebuke older people in the church, older men. Instead, I want to reframe the way you look at these relationships. What should you do? Encourage him. How? Like you would a father. What about a, what about a, a younger man? Treat him like a brother. What about an older woman? Like a mother. You see this? He's reframing this idea. Even as messed up as the church in Ephesus was, Paul wants Timothy to treat all these various categories of people as if they were his own family. I think that's a remarkable insight for how we all ought to think about our spiritual family, isn't it? Because here he is very clearly, Timothy is to be setting a model for the whole church, isn't he? And he, as setting the model for the whole church, is giving an example for all the church. And as we follow his example, then we can learn from him that we too are to treat people in different ways according to their unity with us as family. We are family. We are spiritual family. There are some people who attend church with no sense of family. Uh, They come to church as if it's an event. Less a family, more an event is their mindset. Uh, It's like a a, a tune-up for their car. They roll in, they go to that Jiffy Lube, they get the stuff they need, uh, they get the service they need, they're, they're fixed up, they're refreshed for the rest of the week, and they're out, and they have really little sense of concern for the rest of the people around them. Uh, people at the tune-up, people at Jiffy Lube are not really concerned about the other cars in the shop with them. They're just looking to get what they need and get out. And often, people have thought of church in this way. They come to church. They know little to nothing about the people around them. 
frankly, aren't too concerned about the people around them. They maybe show up a tad late, leave a little early. They have nothing to really say to people, don't really care about getting to know those people, don't really want other people to get to know them, and then they're out as soon as the service is over. And I would just read this text, and I would think, if we're to treat one another like family, the older men like fathers, the older women like mothers, the other ones like brothers and sisters, like we're all part of this family, that Timothy's supposed to be modeling it, why? So we're all modeling it. It would make sense that we're committed here to the people here. That the church, you all know this, is not the building we're in. We, we use that language in English, and I guess it's appropriate. Hey, go to the church building. We're meeting at the church building. The church is a building. That's fine. So long as we understand when the Bible's talking about the church, it's talking about people. It's talking about people you have been brought together with by the Holy Spirit because of the work of Jesus Christ and that we are spiritual family. We have the same Lord. We have the same Father. We have the same Spirit that dwells in us. We have the same mission. We are spiritual family. And so when we come together, this is a family reunion that happens every single week. And there's joy in remembering this reality. We are family. Now, even the difficult ones. You guys know, if you've been here long enough, you know, were there difficult people in the church at Ephesus? They were all kinds of difficult people in the church at Ephesus that Timothy had to deal with. And yet, there's no qualifications here. Rebuke, don't rebuke them, encourage them like a father. That, that operative word there is encourage. Uh, I want you to notice a few things about this little part that introduces this whole section, verses 1 and 2. Notice first that the calling, the main calling, is to encourage. Isn't that fascinating? It may be easy to get so discouraged by a church. In this case, Timothy could have easily been discouraged by the nature of this church. Remember the false teachers? We're going to read, we just read it, these, these widows that are going around gossiping, just ruining relationships, they're busybodies, they're idlers it's describing. There's other people in the church that we know from various places that are just greedy, they're just money hungry, and they've usurped some measure of authority simply so that they would get their ego stroked and get their banks filled. There are people in this church, and as, and as dysfunctional a church can be, still, Paul says, I want you to encourage. Now, that doesn't mean there's no place for confrontation. We very obviously see there is in other places. But when it comes to how the confrontation comes to play, there are times when it's encouraged, it's encouraged, it's encouraged, it's encouraged. Now, I don't think, just to be clear, that Timothy was being told to encourage false teachers. Just to be clear, the false teachers throughout the, the letter um, were not to be encouraged. They were to be charged to stop teaching doctrine. And there are other places in the pastoral epistles where Paul says, have nothing to do with these guys. Get them out of the church. And so this is not referring to those people. This is referring to the faithful people who are just part of this church. And they're maybe been misled a little bit by these false teachers. And here's how Timothy is to come in and now begin to shepherd them. Is the tool of encouragement is his tool. Don't necessarily go in with sharp words of rebuke. Go in appealing to them. Encouraging them. Even in this dysfunctional church. Have you noticed this in your own life? That encouragement is often far more 
uh, powerful than rebuke or critique? Have you noticed that? That the people who are encouraged usually excel far more than the people who are constantly critiqued? I know this will be true in my own life. I have an email uh, that was given to me 13 years ago before I was in any pastoral ministry. I was a sophomore in, no, junior in college. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, but I was, I was thinking, hey, I think I want to serve in the church some way, but I don't know. I got an email from the person who at that point was my college pastor. Some of you know Jordan Baker. Sent me this long email. And I read through this email and it was filled with encouragement. It was filled with him affirming my gifts. It was filled with him saying, I believe in you. I believe God has something for you. And I want you to continue serving in these ways. I want you to continue going in this direction. I went back and refreshed myself uh, this, this week in preparation for the sermon and read through some of the things he said to me and just almost brought to tears at the way God used that email to push me in a direction in full-time service of the Lord. I don't think this side of heaven, there's any reason that I should be in ministry except for the godly people who invested in me and encouraged me. Now, listen, when I was a junior in college, there were a million things you could have critiqued me for. There still are. There were things you could have pointed out as the mistakes I was making, the foolish decisions I was doing, and yet somebody chose to encourage me and to help me along and to say, hey, you're doing great in these areas. Press on, continue. I, I think if you want to be a fruitful and effective servant of Jesus Christ, take up the tool of encouragement and begin using that in the lives of the people around you. Now listen, just to be clear again, this is not flattery. This is not making stuff up, pulling it out of thin air just so you can flatter someone. This is not what he's talking about. This is seeing legitimate good fruit in a person's life and pointing it out and encouraging it. It may be this much good fruit. And there's a lot of foolish things that you maybe don't agree with. And you can get to that in other ways. But you can encourage the good in people. And you can help them along. I could have been nitpicked out a million ways and, and, and yet someone in my life chose to encourage me in the right way. Encourage. That's the operative word of a family. We are encouraging one another. Now listen, pride hates to encourage. Pride hates encouraging other people. You know why? Because when you're encouraging someone, you're taking a spotlight, you're moving it off of yourself, and you're putting it on someone else. And you're saying, you have done well here. By the grace of God, continue to do well here. I encourage you to do well here. It takes humility to remove it off yourself and encourage someone else. Are you humble enough to encourage your church family? Have you humbled yourself enough to say, I don't need the praise, I'm going to give it to someone else? Are you always comparing? And so it makes it really hard for you to affirm the gifts of someone else because that might put them a little bit higher than you. Are you humble enough? Are you always comparing? Are you always evaluating who's better at what? Put that aside. A family will never grow in unity if we're doing that. Instead, as Timothy was encouraged, encourage Encourage is the operative word. And everybody's got a little different um, relationship with you, but they all need a form of encouragement. 
So that's the first thing I want you to notice about these two verses. Encourage is the operative word. But also notice this. There's a variety of relationships. You see that? There's a variety of relationships. Uh, don't rebuke an older man. Okay, so Timothy had relationship with an older man. Uh, what about younger men? He had those two. What about older women? He had relationship with them as well. Um, younger women. Uh, all of these different types of people Timothy would have known in his church and would have had some form of relationship with them. I think this is really instructive just as we think about the implications of this verse. It is normal and expected and healthy that we have close family-like relationships with people who are outside your age demographic. That is very important. I hope my children don't only grow up in this church thinking that the other people their age are the only ones they're connected to. I hope they begin to see the other people in this church as their spiritual aunts and their spiritual uncles, their spiritual grandparents, their spiritual friends uh, that, that come alongside and walk through this life with them. There's a variety of relationships that we all need. And if we uh, silo ourselves off into our own little demographics where it's only our age group in this little meeting, we're going to perpetuate our own ignorance. We're going to become echo chambers. Lord, Lord knows we need the wisdom of the generations. This is why I love our church. One of the reasons is I love our church is we're multi-generational. We have every decade represented here. We have a variety of age demographics. And listen, all of that is good and healthy. And it is good for us to take advantage of this. And, and this is so important. This was the way it should be in the church. Timothy was expected to have relationships with all the different kinds of people in the church. And as an example to us, I think we should strive for the same thing. Notice a third thing about this little section. This is kind of countercultural, but notice this. Timothy was to treat these different people differently according to their gender and their age. Isn't that interesting? We live in a culture that doesn't want to make any distinction, treat everyone exactly the same. Don't look at male or female, treat them exactly the same. Don't look at how old they are or how young they are, treat them exactly the same. Uh, that's not the directions Paul gave Timothy. Do you notice that? If it's an older man, treat him like how you would a father. If it's an older woman, treat him like how you would a mother. Now, you don't treat your father and you don't treat your mother the exact same way. Treat the younger ones like brothers and treat them like sisters. We ought to take into consideration their gender. Men, you don't treat women the same way as other men. And women, you don't treat other men the exact same way. We are to be aware of that, and that is good and healthy. Listen, God invented gender. And it's beautiful, and it's good to remember the distinctions of those genders. Don't treat the ladies in this church, men, as if they're just one of the guys. That won't go over well. It's not healthy. We need to listen to each individual person, know each individual person, and treat them accordingly. Uh, you, you, it, just, it would be insane to think that you could talk to a 70-year-old woman the same way you talk to a 10-year-old boy. I could say to my children, you, you don't eat your broccoli, you don't get your ice cream. And if I went and said that to my grandma, that would be... Crazy. Uh, what do I say to grandma? I say, Grandma, 
you get all the ice cream you want. You don't have to eat any broccoli. In fact, we'll give you ice cream for dinner. That's, that's, if you, that's what you want, Grandma, it's all yours. I'm going to treat her differently than I treat my children. And there's actually, isn't that a way to love one another, to actually treat people as if they're their own individual person, knowing their gender, knowing their age, knowing their life situations, actually getting to know them on their terms and what they're like and their personality and their, where, where they're at. I mean, that, that's, I think, loving rather than just try to treat everyone like everyone's a cookie cutter, exactly the same person. That's not true. Get to know people and love them accordingly. The, 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 the underlying implication of all this is that we are family, and because we're family, we are committed to each other. And there's quirks in a family, isn't there? There's always the weird uncle. And if you think about our church family, there's, there's weird uncles here and aunts. And if you don't know who they are, it's probably you. And that's okay. It's probably me. We're all a little bit odd. And this is the beauty of the gospel, that we are not bound together by our common interests, by the fact that we're all the same. Why are we united? Because of Christ. Because of what the gospel has accomplished. The dividing walls have been broken down, Ephesians chapter 2. The Holy Spirit indwells us and brings us together as a family. We are family. So we embrace one another. We embrace the quirks. And we become that family that just loves to regather. Family means love, doesn't it? Family means commitment, doesn't it? Family means knowing each other and bearing burdens through thick and thin. This is one of the reasons why we emphasize church membership at our church. If you were here last week, we had some people come up front and we read through our affirmations of commitment. Do you remember that? If you were here last week, we read through some affirmations of commitment, which is to say that, that these people up front were making commitments to our church family, and our church family was making commitments back to them. Essentially, we were obeying, we were living in obedience to the implications of these verses we're looking at now. These verses are talking about deep spiritual connections where we treat each other like family. And what we have done in church membership is tried to put that on paper and say, this is what this means for us to do this together. And one of the things we commit to as a church family, one of the affirmations is this. Listen to this. See if you remember hearing this from last week. We said, we affirm our desire to weave our lives together in brotherly love. Or you could use the family metaphor. Family-like love. As we are members of one another, exercising tender care for each other, faithfully admonishing and encouraging one another as occasion may require. Listen, that's not formality. We don't do that because it's some formal you know, process that we get your paperwork and we make it all happen. We do that because, biblically speaking, we need to know who's our family. We need to commit to one another. We need to make family-like commitments. Treat them like a father. Treat them like a mother. Treat them like a, a sister or a brother. This is the, the, the lesson that Paul is giving to Timothy. It's family, which is why, just to be even more practical, at the end of the service... Katie Bartlett, who doesn't know I'm doing this right now, I didn't know I was going to mention her in the middle of my sermon, is going to come up at the very end of the service. She did know that she's coming up at the end of the service. I'm not surprising her on that right now. She's going to come up. Uh, and because this is her last Sunday with her church family for the summer, 
because she lives in Washington. She's going to go back home for a few months. She'll be back in the fall. We want to know if one of our families is not going to be here for a little while, right? So we're going to pray for her, send her off, and hopefully throughout the months while she's gone, pray for her while she's still away. Why? Because a member of our family is on vacation. Or a member of our family is not going to be home for dinner. I mean, that's what I would expect. If my kids were not home for dinner a few nights in a row, I would want to know. Well, our way of helping each other know what's going on in our church family was we're going to just make sure everyone knows and we're going to pray for her. This is how family acts. This is how we obey the covenant that we've made with one another, the commitment we've made with one another. I don't think we should be people who like to attend, like to show up, but we don't want to make any commitments. It seems to me that that's a little bit like cohabitating. I want the benefits of marriage with no commitments and no vows. I think that's unhealthy for a church, which is why we were always trying to press on our church family, especially the people who are regularly here, we're trying to say the Bible calls us to commitment to each other. Read the New Testament and mark all the one another's. You are called to these certain one another's where you are committed to one another. We are family. Let me ask you, what's your commitment to the family look like? What kind of commitments have you made to the church family? Do people know you? Have you let them into your life? Do you know the people around you? You like the guy who shows up to the family reunion and everyone's going, who's that guy? Where did he come from? Why is he eating the chips and dip? Is he part of the family? I think we ought to be people who say, I'm here, I'm in, I'm committed. We don't want to be a family, the, 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 the people just show up to the weddings and never the funerals. We want to be a family where we're through thick and thin together. And how do we do that? We say, here's what it means to be committed. What's our first statement? We are family. We are family. Paul said to Timothy, treat people like they're your family. Don't go in harshly rebuking everyone. Go in treating them like family. Here's our second statement. We care for our needy. We care for our needy. Okay, so if we're going to treat each other like family, if we're going to say we're family, well, there are people in the family who are particularly needy. They're in life situations where they are uh, in desperate need. And in particular, he mentions widows, and he begins to give widows um, or, or the church directions for how they ought to care for widows. Now, I want you to just think back with me and travel back in time to the first century. Widows were highly vulnerable in this day and age. Uh, they were vulnerable to all kinds of exploitation. If the husband died, they could be left all alone. There were no food stamps. There was no government support. There were no homes they could just go put them into. Uh, it was a much more dire situation. There were even situations in my studying I came across that the, the husband would die and leave all his inheritance to his son and nothing to his wife. Oh, what an awful situation where the money just bypasses and the support just bypasses the poor widow, goes straight to a son, and the widow is left alone. It's just awful things would happen in the Roman Empire in these days where widows were left without anyone to care for them. 
In the Old Testament, there are three classes, three types of people who are described as um, the, the poorest of the poor. They are the, the, the sojourners, the immigrants without any land. Israel was to be a nation that was uh, hospitable to them. It was the orphan, those who had no parents that were surviving them. And it was the widow. And these people throughout the Scriptures are, <laughs> have a, a special place in the heart of God. And God regularly instructs His people that they ought to be caring for these people. It's really interesting. Uh, one of the reasons Jesus was so infuriated about the scribes and the Pharisees in the Gospels is in Luke chapter 20, verse 47, is they were described as devouring widows' houses. And these, these so-called spiritual leaders, a widow would, ha- would, would uh, lose her husband, a woman would lose her husband, she becomes a widow, she becomes vulnerable, and the ones that were intending or were supposed to be the ones that would guide them and help them spiritually would actually come in and exploit them and, and take their money on the pretense of their giving it to God. It was an awful thing. And so God's people, he wants to set in contrast to the false religionists and even to the pagan cultures, God's people are people who care for their needy. They care for the lowest of the low. In Acts chapter 6, when the church is just being started, you remember what the issue was when they got these prototype deacons ready and serving? It was because the widows weren't being cared for in Acts 6. And so the church had to organize a new structure so as to care for the widows. God wants His people to care for the needy. But what's interesting in this letter that we get from Paul to Timothy is that not all widows were to be cared for in exactly the same way. I hope you noticed when we read that not all widows are to be cared for in exactly the same way. In fact, he distinguishes different kinds of widows and gives them direction for different kinds of care that they need. Look with me in verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. That word truly, Paul is using to designate a different group from a regular widow. A, A true widow is one thing. And we're going to see there's a different kind of widow that's a different thing that requires different care. Honor widow who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. Do you guys see the distinction between the two different kinds of widows? One is a true widow, has nothing has no children, has no grandchildren, has no one to care for them. That's a true widow. And then the second type of widow is someone who has family, has grandchildren, has children to care for them. And he begins to address both types of widows. In verse 5, the widow, the true widow, it says she is a truly a widow left all alone. What's a true widow? Someone who has nothing. Absolute destitution. There's nothing that she has. No family is surviving her. She has no one, no income. She is left nothing and has, therefore, verse 5, set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. There's these true widows that have nothing. And then there's these other widows that are uh, still able to be cared for by their family. I want to address that second widow, the widow with family. I want you to notice this. The first line of defense, if a husband dies and there's a widow, the first line of defense for caring for that widow is who? 
It's their own kids or grandkids. It's their own family. It's their own household. This widow must be cared for, but it is not, it is not the first and foremost responsibility of the church to take them in and to provide for them and to meet all their expenses. It's not the first and foremost thing. Why? Because that would be to rob that family from some responsibility God has given them. And the church must not do that. The church must let the family take responsibility for the widow among them. I want you to notice that there are no qualifications here. This doesn't say only if, you're, if the widow's a believing widow. Uh, this, if it's your mom, let's imagine. It's only, it doesn't say only if she was a good mom, only if she did well raising you, and once she gets to the point where you, she needs your care, if she's done good enough, then you can care for her. No, there are no qualifications. If your mom was absent, if your mom was not a good mother, and even if she's not believing, it doesn't give any qualifications. It simply says that it is the children or the grandchildren's responsibility to make sure she's cared for. It is that responsibility, that responsibility is falling on them. Life turns full circle, doesn't it? The parents that brought you up and fed you and clothed you, there will likely come a time that it will be your responsibility to feed them, care for them, and clothe them. You have either done that, are doing that, or will do that, but it is your responsibility as a Christian family to care for the widow that is in your family. This is actually was normal in first century for most of the Greco-Roman culture that their households would include the elderly among them. That was normal. That the elderly would just be brought into the house. There were no social security, no special homes. Even pagans would do this. They would have their elderly living among them, which is why, look at this in verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, you guys want to hear something that might sound a little harsh? Look at this. If you don't provide for your relatives, and especially for the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I mean, this is speaking in the past tense. It's already happened. The very act of you saying to your widowed mom, I'm not responsible for you. You've got to figure it out on your own. And she has nothing apart from you. She can't go anywhere. You've denied the faith. There's no way that you could have the love of Christ in you and be making that decision to refuse care for a poor widow because that is absolutely the opposite of the heart of God. God is not that way. And when you act that way toward a widow who's in your very own family, you are not acting like God. You would be acting more satanic than like God. This is reality that Christians always put tangible expressions to their faith. I want to just show you this in 1 John. Turn over to 1 John chapter 3. Christians ought to be known for tangible expressions of love. It is not enough to have good intentions, but to have tangible actions out of obedience to God is what God requires of His people. And one of the tangible ways you're called to imitate God and to obey God is in this world, when there's a widow in your very own household, you make sure she is cared for. 1 John chapter 3 hits the same idea. Look at this. But if anyone has the world's goods 
Okay, he's describing someone who's got their life put together. They have the world's goods. They have a, a little bit of wealth at least. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother, his brother. Now, I don't think that's only talking about your biological brother. I think that's talking about your spiritual brother, your, your friend, your church friend, your, your church member. You see your brother in need and yet closes his heart against him. Listen to what John says. How does God's love abide in him? You get what he's saying? It's not possible. It is not possible for you to even have the love of God in you. If you walk into church and there's a destitute brother who's genuinely genuinely in need and your heart just closes up against that person. If you're not willing to actually move to that person in love, if you're not willing to help in some way, he's saying you probably don't know the love of God. How can God's love abide in him? This has great implications for our church family, doesn't it? If you see someone in our church family who has genuine need and you're not willing to help, you're like, I'm committed to showing up, but I'm not committed to go anything beyond that. There's a big question mark over your profession of faith. And that's coming from John, not me. So if you're willing to walk in and walk out and walk in and walk out on a Sunday morning and there are needs all around you every Sunday, there's needs represented in the people who are here every Sunday, Uh, there are people who are needy spiritually speaking, there are people who are needy in other ways, and you just have no heart to give of yourself to them. I just wonder if you're saved based on what this says. Because look at verse 14. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. How do you know that you're saved? You love the church. You love the people of God. Your heart's not closed against them. You're committed to them. And even more specifically, how does this play out in our text? We go back to 1 Timothy 5. This will play out in you loving the desperate, you loving the destitute, you loving the downtrodden in sacrificial acts of love, tangible actions where you love that person, you love that widow who needs it. In verse 4, back in 1 Timothy chapter 5, this is pleasing in the sight of God. It pleases God to do that. It pleases God. Keep that in your mind. Some of you are caring for parents right now. It's really hard or it's about to happen. It's going to be really hard. It's never rosy to help people in their final years of life. It's going to be hard, isn't it? But listen, this isn't a distraction from the things God has called you to do. This is what God has called you to do. It's it's what God has called you to do. Verse 4, it's pleasing in the sight of God to do this. And so you are pleasing God when you care for those who are widows when your family helps them. This doesn't always mean you help them in exactly the same way. This doesn't mean that you're responsible to bring them into your home. It might mean that. In our modern day and age, we have a lot of options for people uh, who are uh, coming to the end of their life and a lot of different ways to help them. The point is, you are responsible to provide the help and make sure it is happening. As Christians, we reflect God when we do that. And it pleases Him. But there's another kind of widow. This is the true widow. Verse 3, honor those who are truly widows. These are the people, again, who have nothing, not even any family. Now the church has a special way to care for those. The church has a special thing for those widows. Look at verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age 
having been the wife of one husband, and he goes on to create a list. There's a, a, an enrollment, which is interesting because we don't see this in our modern churches. Have you seen this? Maybe some of you have. Churches in ages past used to have a, a list of widows. And these widows were put on a list like it's describing here, and these widows were uh, serving the church, and they were even provided for a little bit by the church according to their need. This was a normal thing in some ancient churches, and throughout the years this has been normal for churches to do. I don't know if we see them as much anymore. Not sure why. But these widows, if they met a certain standard, if they met some qualifications, they were to be enrolled, they were to be put on a list, and I think they were to be deployed in service of the church. There are a few qualifications. Number one, they had to be destitute, remember? No children, no grandchildren. They had to have nothing. They had to be no one else uh, able to care for them. If they had any family, the church would be asking that family, pleading with that family to come, hey, take care of your widow. It is your God-given responsibility to care for your widow. But if they didn't have any of that family, the church family would take them in. Secondly, they had to be over 60. This was pretty old in those days. The average lifespan for a woman was 36 years old. So if you made it to 60, um, you, were to be, uh, you would be a matriarch of the, of the home. You would be an older one that would be uh, needing special care. And so you had to be destitute. That was the first qualification. Second, you had to be over 60. And thirdly, you had to have lived an exemplary life. Look at, look at verse 5. She's truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God. That's her, how she's described. But also, she had to, after verse 9, look at this, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints. This is very similar to the elder qualifications in the chapter 3. That this woman who is now a widow, who's older in her faith, who has experienced walking with the Lord for many years, who has been exemplary, this particular widow is to be enrolled in some sort of ministry where the widow is unleashed on the church to serve it. And she's, she's like the single in 1 Corinthians 7 who can just offer her time undevotedly to the Lord. Uh, the word enrolled is like a military word. Enlist this widow and, and make sure she's cared for and then allow her to just serve and bless the church in her time. Uh, Warren Wearsby, who, who happened to die this last week, but has a great commentary where he comments on some of this stuff, mentioned about this. He said, it, is my, it has been my experience in three different pastorates that godly widows are spiritual powerhouses in the church. They are the backbone of the prayer meetings. They give themselves to visitation and they swell in the ranks of teachers in the Sunday school. Uh, this is what the church was able to do, that to support the widow. They wouldn't just give them a handout, here's free money. In fact, Paul warns against that here in a little bit. But these widows would be provided for and then enlisted to serve the church. Verse 11, certain widows were to not be cared for. Don't enroll younger widows. Especially this, these types of widows, look at what they're described as. Don't enroll younger widows, verse 11. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. I think this is describing a widow who is in their dire situation, desperate to marry someone, anyone, doesn't care who, and this desperation to get remarried causes them to fall away from Christ. They don't care if they're marrying an unbeliever. They just want some security. And so they rush into some relationship and they're falling away from the Lord as they do that. They're abandoning their faith, Paul would say. And if the church puts someone like this 
on their budget and starts funding them. Paul's saying, don't do that with your church's money. You're just a funding irresponsibility. These people are trying to milk the church, and as tragic as it is that a widow, anytime someone becomes a widow, it's an absolute tragedy, but it is not helpful to enlist this person, fund their life, especially as they are going from house to house, gossiping, they're becoming idle. You've probably heard of a person who has come to hard times, reached out for someone for help, got financial help, and then used those finances to continue living an irresponsible lifestyle, never went back to work, uh, milked the church or milked the generosity of a Christian as much as they could. Paul's trying to avoid that. Paul's trying to avoid that, verse 14. So he would have younger widows marry, and that would mean marry another believer, bear children, manage their households, give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. This was happening in the church's Ephesus. That's why Paul needed to address it. And so certain widows need to be enrolled. They need to be over 60. They need to have lived a life of exemplary faith, and they need to be absolutely destitute for them to be qualified to be enrolled and enlisted. This isn't to say this is the only way that the church can care for widows, but this is the specific way that the church needed to in Ephesus. All right, let's, let's, you say, okay, let's wrap this up. What are the applications here for us? Number one, the first line of defense is the biological family. For caring for widows, the first line of defense is the biological family. Children, Know that you are going to be responsible to care for your parents at some point. That is before God, your responsibility to make sure children or grandchildren, you're caring for your aging parents. Second principle, the church is not to be burdened with people who don't actually need their care. That's what verse 16 says, let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. The church is to care for true widows, but not everyone needs the same care. The, the family needs to take responsibility for the aging widows who have family. The church isn't to be burdened with that. And third, the church must support the certain widow, the true widow. And when that need arises, we must prayerfully seek as a church family how to arrange that kind of care. Because the directions of exactly what is entailed in that list is not clear in the letter to Timothy. Let's wrap it up with this last statement. Here's our last statement. We reflect God's love with our care. Why, do you, why, why talk about widows, widows this way? Why spend so much time expositing a passage about widows? Verse 4, this is pleasing in the sight of God. That's why we're here. When a kid takes care of their aging parents, you are pleasing the Lord. When we care for the downtrodden, when we care for the desperate, we are reflecting the heart of a father who cares for the downtrodden, the desperate. He cares that way. He always has. God loves to care for those who could never pay Him back. God loves to care for people who have no strength to care for Himself. This is the gospel. Now, I want to show you and remind you, this really is what God is like. You don't have to try to work this up in your mind and convince yourself this is true of God. He is this way. And the way He wants to care for the widows among us and the needy among us is through us, 
through the church, we are the instrument God is using to care for His needy people. God is this way. And I just want to say, you may not be a widow, but you may have felt abandoned. And you may not be poor, but you may have felt empty. You may not be literally lost, but you may have felt that way. And the good news is, you know what God is like? He loves to give free gifts to the people who are lost. He loves to give free gifts to the people who are poor. He loves to welcome in those who have been abandoned into his own family. You know how I know he does that? He loves that is because that's why he sent his own son. Jesus Christ came into the world to seek and save sinners, to go after that which was lost, to give those who were poor an eternal inheritance. This is what God is like. He really is this way. He loves sinners and He came to die for sinners on the cross. It's the Gospel. To pay for all their sins and then to rise again on the third day and then offer free forgiveness to everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ. God loves to do this. And if you are poor in spirit and you are lost spiritually and you are empty, this is what God has for you a Savior in riches, eternal riches for everyone who comes to the Savior. And now, being loved by God, if you turn and trust Him, receiving all He's done for you by faith, you become part of the spiritual family of God. You know what happens in our spiritual family? We care for one another. We love one another. We're committed to one another. And as we care for one another, here's our third point, we reflect the love of God. We become a flesh and bone picture of God's love for the world. And that's appealing to someone who's never tasted it. You go to that family reunion, you want to stay. You go to a family reunion, no one likes each other, you can't get out of there too fast. And our prayer is that as we reflect on these passages and how God cares for us, that we would begin to care for one another in the same way. Let's pray. So Lord, thank You that You're a good Father. And thank You that You give riches to the poor, healing to the broken. You seek out and save those who are lost. You welcome in those who have been abandoned. Lord, that's who You are. Thank You that all our sin has been washed away through Jesus Christ. And now, Lord, we can truly love one another as a family. I pray that we'd be helped to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.